kind of a small time uh, opportunity finder, sort of a drug dealer. He kind of runs this group of. <laughs> That's such like, a great description. <laughs> sort of a drug dealer. <laughs> Welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai, excited to be joining you all again for another conversation about theater's best scripts. If I sound more excited than usual, it's because I just graduated grad Woo! school. So <laughs> I'm excited. I, uh, there's a, like a couple weeks off that we took from our recording schedule uh, to finish up finals, but I'm excited to be back, excited to be talking about another great play today. That is right. Jackson is free and we are so happy for him. So we celebrate his success and his accomplishment and we celebrate it through having a conversation about a great script, yeah, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't know. yeah. As we is our I, custom. We don't, we're, you know, we don't do this in person. We were, we were a podcast over the internet. So it's like, I can't hand you your trophy or whatever right, right. would be suitable. <laughs> I, I could hand you like a diploma through like a PDF totally. attachment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, today on No Script, we are having a conversation about one of the more prominent American playwrights that in our eight seasons we haven't come to yet. And that's probably on us, not on any sort of slight against uh, Kenneth Lonergan, who is an incredible American playwright, uh, really well known, especially right now. He's come into a lot of prominence as a screenwriter as well, but has recently had several very well lauded Tony nominated Broadway revivals of his plays. Uh, of course, we'll, we'll talk in the contest section, but he is the uh, now Oscar award winning screenwriter for Manchester by the Sea. Uh, a movie yeah. that just tears absolutely tears your heart out has one of the uh, Manchester by the Sea has one of the most amazing movie scenes I've ever seen in it and Ooh. so to be able to <laughs> to talk about a play by that same writer uh, is a great privilege and this is an interesting swing for us Jackson having just discussed the gin game <laughs> it's true <laughs> this is like this play is like the opposite of the gin game <laughs> absolutely yeah we liked we like to kind of run the gambit on genre and theme just give you some whiplash if you're listening along uh, as uh, along with the season as it comes out we like to keep you on your toes um, but but also get to cover just a wide genre of scripts and we'll continue to do that today with This Is Our Youth by Kenneth Lonergan um, before we jump into the conversation though I want to just take just a second and say thank you as we always do to our patrons over on patreon.com slash no script podcast thank you all so much for becoming patrons of the show means the world to us. The show is completely supported by our patrons over on patreon.com. Um, and uh, if you're looking for a way to be a part of the show to kind of uh, join the NoScript community in, in another way than just, uh, you know, finding us on Facebook, liking the posts and stuff like that, Patreon's a great way to do it. At the lowest tier, which is just $1 a month, that's uh, $12 over the course of the year, you get access to patron-only posts. And there's other tiers that you can look at that give various rewards over there too. So if you're either a longtime listener um, who is just looking for a way to kind of get involved a little bit more, um, or if you're, you know, comparatively new listener and liking what you hear, liking uh, some of the special things that we do on the podcast, whether it's themed month or our special guest episode, more on that later. Um, uh, but uh, any of those things, 
we would love to see you over on patreon.com slash no script podcast. And uh, yeah, we'll, 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 we'll run into you over there. I'm sure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to everybody who supports the show. We appreciate you. And not quite now back to the script, although that's what I just took the inhale of breath to say, because (laughs) we also want to let everybody know, just like Jackson just teased, that in a couple of weeks from now, we have upcoming our special guest episode for this season. This is a really exciting part of No Script. It's one of our favorite parts season to season is to get to have a conversation about a script with someone who has a different voice a unique perspective. In the past, we've had people who have actively directed or acted in productions of the script they've talked about. We have people who have unique life experiences that contribute specifically to the topic of conversation that the play is going to. And now, in this case, we have a really cool opportunity. Our special guest episode is going to be a conversation that I had. It's already happened in the past. Just that's how the world of podcasting works. You will hear about it in several (laughs) weeks, though. I had a great conversation uh, with Jeffrey Sweet, who is a, a really awesome playwright um, and and screenwriter and teacher, uh, and he knew Lanford Wilson personally. You'll get to hear a lot of those stories uh, during our conversation, and so he and I talk about Lanford Wilson's autobiographical play Lemon Sky. You don't want to miss that episode. It was an awesome conversation. We're working on putting it together and having it ready for you, so that will come out a couple of weeks from now. Keep your eyes peeled. We're really excited to let you all know about that conversation. Yeah, I'm super excited. It's a great conversation and excited to get to share it with all of you in a couple weeks. So stay tuned for that. And now back to the script. There we go. All right. All right. Kenneth Lonergan. Yes. So we are coming to Kenneth for the first time on this podcast, which again, we there's so many of his plays that are uh, really popular still in the American theater. We mentioned several Broadway revivals, so we, we should have come to him sooner, but we're coming to him now. Uh, he is a really well-known both playwright and screenwriter. I'll start with the screenwriting thing since it's more adjacent to what we're talking about. You may know the incredible movie, the genre-defining movie, the Daniel Day-Lewis-defining movie, Gangs of New York. That is a uh, script that was co-written, is the phrase, that the Hollywood screenwriting lingo that they used for that particular script. He co-wrote Gangs of New York, but then of course, and, and lots of other stuff. Of course, I'm just mentioning the highlights, but, and the major highlight right now, of course, is Manchester by the Sea, which he wrote and directed with, with Casey Affleck, who played the leading role in that movie. You will hear a little bit more about Casey Affleck in a minute. Uh, that movie went on to get nominated for tons of stuff at all kinds of award levels um, and win a lot of stuff too but notably in our case it won the Oscar for best original screenplay and again I just love that movie it is uh, it's very simple it's very human it's very heartbreaking and has one of the just most gut-wrenching amazing scenes I've ever seen in a movie where when the the son opens the freezer and it, there's all that frozen yeah. food and it reminds him of his dad in the uh, whose whose body is just remaining frozen because they can't mm-hmm. dig the grave because the ground is frozen I mean the, the the conversation that happens with that character and and Casey Affleck's character is just a, a an amazing piece of writing um, and, and that gives you maybe a little sense of the admiration that I have for Kenneth Lonergan as a writer. 
As a playwright, uh, he's been doing it a long time. In 1982, he was an undergraduate, and he wrote a play that was selected for Sondheim's put-together project called uh, the Young Playwrights Festival. So even as an undergrad, he was getting that kind of acclaim. He graduated from the NYU playwriting program. He's written tons of plays. The most famous three are This Is Our Youth, which we're talking about today, another very funny play called Lobby Hero, and day it's not autobiographical it's it's sort of a memory-ish kind of play called uh waverly gallery gallery sorry and um all three of those plays had broadway revivals somewhat recently in the scope of the theater world that were all nominated for tony's for best revival uh this play this is our youth began in 1993 as a one act called betrayal by everyone. I applaud Mr. Lonergan highly for changing that title. (laughs) (laughs) This is our youth is a much stronger title than that. It was eventually produced in its full form by the new group in 1996. Now what's going to happen is I'm going to just lead you through a little high, couple of the highlights of the theaters that have done it, as well as some of the names that you're going to be, if you don't already know some of the storied history of especially the young men that have played the two young male characters in the show, you're about to be uh, amazed, I suspect. So the opening production, uh, new group in New York City, 96, this has in it Josh Hamilton and a young, very young at this point, Mark Ruffalo playing the, I guess we'll talk about protagonist, whatever, but the, what I would imagine is the protagonist character, Warren, a young Mark Ruffalo. Second Stage Theater in 98 performs it, in the, and Mark Ruffalo revives his role opposite Mark Rosenthal. Then, in London in 2002, it finally transfers across the pond, as they say, and you get Hayden Christensen and Jake Gyllenhaal and Anna Paquin all together in this three-hander. I mean, holy moly. (laughs) My goodness, yeah. (laughs) Uh, In 2002... Uh, it looks like this is the same production that had a change of cast at this point. Uh, and you get Matt Damon acting with Casey Affleck and Summer Phoenix. It goes on. Eventually, Kieran Culkin joins the cast for a different production uh, later in 2002. Uh, and Kieran Culkin is notable because at that point, he's playing Warren, which is the younger of the two character, male characters in this show. He will come back later playing the older of the two male characters. And that is in 2014, when Steppenwolf Theater revives the play in a production that eventually transfers to the Court Theater on Broadway. They go from Steppenwolf to Broadway. And this is Kieran Culkin, uh, Michael Cera, and Tabby Gevinson. Uh, Michael Cera is an incredible cast for Warren. And I mean, if, if you know Michael Cera's sort of funky personality and sort of individual. <laughs> ness about him Uh, it is just it is spot on perfect for warren at least the warren that i imagine in this play and so like i mentioned kieran coakland comes from playing warren much earlier in 2002 so 12 years earlier to playing the older of the two characters dennis and my understanding from interviews and such that i've seen is that this project kind of came out of kieran coakland's desire to revive the play and to play dennis and that he approached 
approached Michael Cera, and then they found a home to do the production. And a director, of course, Anna Di Shapiro is inspirational, amazing, incredible director that they garnered. She's the artistic director at Steppenwolf. Uh, to um, she was the one who directed the show, so they found a home for the play at Steppenwolf, which eventually transferred to Broadway. And Michael Cera is fond of saying that was like his second play ever. Like, he's a film actor. He's not oh, really wow, yeah. a stage actor. So that was his second play ever. He goes on, I believe, to be in Lobby Hero later on in its Broadway revival. So he sort of found, I guess, uh, uh, an artistic satisfaction in working on the Kenneth Lonergan plays. Yeah, I caught the theater bug that way. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, uh, we're, we're going to jump into the conversation here in a minute, but I am just going to take a second and synopsize this show um, uh, just to give us all kind of a similar footing on which to start our conversation. Um, this uh, this play centers, well, it's it's set in uh, the Upper West Side of Manhattan in Dennis's one-room apartment. I'll give you Dennis, who Dennis is in just a moment, but it's set in the 1980s, 1982, which is interesting that that's the same year that you mentioned when uh, Kenneth Lonergan was doing his undergraduate work and getting awards in there, so it's, it's set in in the in the early 80s and uh yeah it's in dennis's apartment now dennis is this kind of uh he's in he's he's 21 years old he's the older of the the, the characters in the play and he's um he's it, this play has the kind of great long descriptions of characters that you see in some classic plays and uh he's this kind of like person who's still living off of his kind of hype from his high school days um and and kind of living alone in this in this flat apartment or this kind of grungy apartment in Manhattan. I'm going to just real quick as I'm uh, kind of embarking on the synopsis here, just give you a quick warning. This play has quite a bit of drug use in it and quite a bit of, uh, of, of language around. Well, I mean, it's, it's a play about this is our youth in the 80s. Yeah, I like language, sexual content, drugs. We we always do our best to to sort of keep this as listenable as possible for as many people as possible. But just know this is an episode about that kind of play. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So if you, if you want to put your headphones in, that's your warning. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so, uh, he, he kind of lives in this, in this apartment and has kind of gotten along as kind of a, kind of a small time, uh, opportunity finder, sort of a drug dealer. He kind of runs this group of, <laughs> he kinda that's such like, a great description, <laughs> sort of a drug dealer. <laughs> he, he, he like sort of just by his raw charisma runs this group of friends that all both do the drugs that they try to sell to other people and uh, just kind of uh, live the life of a, of a young person in Manhattan in the 1980s. Um, to his apartment comes his friend Warren. Warren shows up uh, with a backpack full of stuff. He's he's 19 years old. He's kind of described as, uh, well, Dennis is described as kind of this like uh, athletic build sort of person, uh, clearly played sports in high school sort of guy. Um, Dennis, or, I'm sorry, Warren is described as a little bit more odd, I think is the, the line that is, that is used for him. Uh, an odd kicked dog, <laughs> excuse me, an odd kicked dog of a kid with large tracts of thoughtfulness is one line that is used for him. And he shows up, he's got this backpack and this suitcase full of stuff, and he kind of comes and he's, he's 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 trying to crash at uh, Dennis's place. Dennis is uh, uh, pretty frequently through the play derogatory towards Warren, even as they have some friendly affection towards each other. So right from the bat, he's like, no way, I don't want you to stay here. Please don't stay here. Get out of here. Um... But what becomes clearer and clearer is Warren is is kind of stuck here because he's just been kicked out of his dad's 
house. Um, his dad is this kind of, uh, I think he's a lingerie tycoon and has made quite a bit of money in, in designing lingerie. I believe that Dennis describes him as the most dangerous lingerie manufacturer <laughs> in the world. Yep, yep, yep. Um, and uh, uh, Warren is also frequently using substances, particularly marijuana, and uh, he gets kicked out because his dad comes home and he's like, your room is always, always smelling like weed, you gotta get out of here, and you gotta get out of here before I get back tonight. So uh, Warren basically ransacks his dad's house, stuffs a bunch of his kind of collectible toys into a suitcase, and also finds this... Uh, um, briefcase full of money, $15,000. He manages to steal all that money and bring it to Dennis's house. So through the course of the early part of the play, we, we find out that Warren has owed Dennis money before, at least Dennis claims that he does. So Dennis not only takes some of his weed, but takes some of his money, and then discovers that he doesn't just have uh, some money, but in fact has $15,000. Um, and uh, uh, <laughs> Warren proceeds to like start to offer ways to spend the money. Dennis is somewhat afraid of Warren's father, so uh, he doesn't really want to do it at first, but eventually they come up with this scheme to go out, buy some drugs, have a good time, but not use all the drugs and sell it back for more money than they bought it for uh, the next day and uh, try to uh, kind of uh, zero, zero sum the money back into the pack so that eventually Warren can bring the money back to his dad. None of them get into trouble. Dennis doesn't get attacked by his, uh, Warren's bodyguards and they all get to have a good time tonight. Um, so uh, what, what then proceeds is they, they, they try to find people to have a good time with. Um, so uh, Dennis calls his old girlfriend Valerie and Valerie is a friend of Jessica who Warren is in love with. Um, so... Uh, Dennis, like, goes out with Valerie to get the drugs for the night, and uh, Jessica comes over and spends some time with Warren uh, alone in the apartment. And it becomes clear that there's some magnetism between them. They have a pretty wide branching conversation between them that is both delightfully awkward and also sometimes cringily awkward, um, where they talk about, uh, like, for instance, they, they cover a lot of topics. They talk about each other's lives. They talk about uh, Warren's parents and Dennis's parents and how Dennis's parents are these rich artists folk. They talk about some tragedy that Warren is sort of reluctant to talk about around his sister, um, that, that he kind of tries to talk about at one point but can't really bring it up. Um, Jessica talks about like Reaganism and how the children of the sixties all became lawyers and, and, uh, now like have kind of left behind all the things that they believe. And isn't it scary how, how so much of your, your morals kind of change as life goes on and as you get older. So it's a wide branching conversation that eventually leads to them dancing to some music that Warren has brought. And, um, that eventually gets them over some of the awkwardness. They kiss, um, they continue to dance, and eventually Warren says, how about we get out of here and go to a hotel? We'll just leave Dennis and uh, spend the night at a hotel, at, like an expensive hotel in a penthouse. I have all this money, let's just go. And that's how the, the first act ends. The uh, second act picks up. Uh, Dennis has returned or gone through his night. It's the day after. Dennis is passed out on, on the mattress. Uh, Warren comes back and kind of regales Dennis with a portion of, of uh, how the night went. Um, he and uh, uh, Warren and Jessica had slept together the night before. She had kind of left um, kind of worried about, about uh, how quickly everything had gone. And so uh, Warren had returned to Dennis. 
Dennis finds out that Warren spent another thousand dollars of his dad's money. And Dennis is starting to panic a little bit more because he's really sure that Warren's dad is going to pin this on Dennis. So Dennis hatches up this scheme to go and sell all of Warren's antique toys um, that he's brought with him to this friend of his that, uh, that he thinks will get them a good price for it. So... Dennis goes off and leaves, takes the toys with him. It's kind of a heart-wrenching scene. We'll get into that in a minute. Um, uh, but importantly, one item that Warren reserves is this ball cap from his grandpa who went to Wrigley Field the first day it opened. It's an antique hat. Um, and uh, so, so then Jessica comes over and tries to connect with Warren again, saying, like, I'm sorry, I can't hang out today or, or really this week. My mom doesn't like me being out and I didn't call her. So we're going to we have to fix that bridge, etc. But she also is there to kind of figure out uh, whether or not Warren has told anyone yet, because in, in another sort of subplot, a beautifully complex subplot, Dennis's girlfriend, Valerie, has broken up with him. Warren has broken a very special statue of hers. So Valerie hates Dennis because he doesn't respect her things. And and so and Jessica's friends with Valerie, who she told she did not sleep with Warren. However, Warren has told Dennis that they in fact did sleep together and uh, thus Jessica feels somewhat betrayed uh, the fact that he would just kind of go right away and tell tell Dennis about this. Uh, Warren tries to patch this up by like saying, you know, I'm sorry, I do really like you. Is there anything I can do to make it up to you? Jessica says, well, you could give me a gift. How about that hat? Um, which kind of leads them to to a fairly tense scene where Warren does in fact give give her the hat, but um, she leaves it behind eventually because uh, she can't bear to take it from him, and he seems fairly upset about it. We're almost to the end of it. <laughs> the 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 end of the the sort of or the sort of climax of that 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 relationship sort of. Um, breaks up basically in that scene. You get the feeling that there isn't there isn't there's there's some some loss of relationship there. Dennis returns from having sold the toys and not only and, and he comes he comes back in in two uh problematic ways. He comes back first of all having sold the toys for uh like 1600 less than uh Warren thought they were worth. So uh he he comes back gives him $900. He thought he was going to make 2500, but he also comes back having heard that their friend who they bought drugs from the other night had died of a drug overdose or bad drugs or something. They're not exactly sure. Um, that night. And so Dennis kind of comes back in this existential crisis about their friend dying. Um, and and what proceeds is a, is a pretty uh, a robust reflection by Dennis about the fragility of life and what, in fact, are they doing? Can they, in fact, sustain this sort of lifestyle for much longer? Um, and he just kind of like vamps on that for a while. More and more, we start to see uh, Warren discerning how much Dennis doesn't care for Warren's feelings. Um, and, and Warren kind of puts the question to him, why are we even friends? I don't think you're on my side. Um, and kind of in the last scene of the play, there's this last moment where, uh, Dennis, uh, finally peters out on his tirade and Warren confesses something about his sister that in fact, his sister was murdered and Dennis doesn't even pick up on it at all. He's still, he's still on his, his, uh, his existential crisis. The play ends pretty quickly after that with this kind of um, tension between them and sort of wondering about, um, yeah, whether they can sustain this sort of friendship, this sort of life uh, anymore. And and Warren eventually says, okay, I guess I'll just go. His, his dad has called them earlier on, told him he caught him stealing the money. He's going to go home $2,000 short, basically, and just face the music with his dad. And uh, that's 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 kind of the the way the play sort of like 
you know, unresolvedly ends is the the sort of tension of the ongoing likelihood of these two being able to sustain this lifestyle that they're trying to lead. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned as you were describing it that this is these are like young people, early 80s, New York City. But I do think that there's one more important descriptor of who these people are in a specific way rather than just being generally young in New York City in the 80s that I, I think is important to to what this play First of all, why this play has so much staying power for all of the sex and drugs and rock and roll right. uh, and and for all of the things that are uncomfortable about it, frankly. Um, and, and also what part of the 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 sort of not it's not quite scathing, but the really specific sort of knife edge commentary that exists between these between the lines, especially, um, and that is that these are three affluent people. These are three rich. Uh, we nowadays, in a way that I don't think they used it in the eighties or in the nineties when the play was written. I guess more aptly, uh, we we would talk about them as as privileged young. Uh, I would. I mean, I I suppose you could cast this play with people of color, but I really think of this play um, as uh, you know rich young white kids in New York City. Um, and they they have a safety blanket that it always exists for them. Their parents come up in conversation all the time, and there's always a sense that there is this fallback. That doesn't mean that their relationships with their parents are great. They're not. Or that their parents are awesome people, at least by way that we know their parents through the characters. It seems like they're almost across the board not. But... These are not people who have uh, who have no other choice but to live the way that they live. Uh, this is a quote from the very, very end of the play. Warren and Dennis alone in the apartment. They're reflecting on this drug dealer. They know Stewie who's died, as Jackson described, uh, and who was to some degree a friend of theirs. Uh, and Warren starts talking. He says, um, I'm going to skip around this monologue a little bit. He says, like my dad is always saying, do you know how bad you guys would have to F up before anything really serious ever happened to you? Skipping around. Do you know what happens to other kids who do the kind of shit you guys do? They die, man. And the only difference between you and them is my money. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the more kind of poignant moments of like, where are these kids coming from? The other one uh, is Dennis admits that his parents just basically foot the bill for his apartment yes. so they don't have to hang out together. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, you get these. I agree that that, that it's, it is a prevalent theme in the play, but it comes about by way of these just kind of side comments and by the general wondering of how on earth can these kids sustain what they're doing? <laughs> I mean, they're not kids; they're young adults. Um, but but how are they sustaining? Well, well I, I, that I, that I think is part of the play too. This like line <laughs> yeah. between being kids and young adults. But uh, we'll we'll have that conversation later. Sorry. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, so yeah, this sort of safety net that they operate under, and even down, like Jessica also brings in that theme too. She has a very um, uh, watchful mother or mother that wants to be sure that she knows where she is at all times that take care that takes care of her at all times so and and she mentions at one point that i'm i i have to take care of that relationship or something along those lines is what she says so she's dependent upon her mother for 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 a, a, a part of her existence um even even in her 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 kind of late teens so so yeah there's this this whole theme of this 
yeah, affluence and these people kind of living a lifestyle that uh, that that uh, is is well, the question of does their lifestyle have consequences? Yes, um, because is, it's not like they're rich in the yeah. sense that they live richly. You know, like uh, the the apartment that is the setting for the play, Dennis's apartment, is not a, a five room penthouse apartment that his parents put him up in. He lives in a studio in New right, York City, which apartment. I recognize. Yeah. A grody studio in New York City is still like you have to be a millionaire to be able to afford it. But it's <laughs> yeah. not like these these. As individuals, they live as if they're wildly rich. I am very sure all three of these people are the kind of people who would say, my parents are rich. Right. right, Sure, (laughs) I can go skiing with that. You know, uh, I think it's Warren who describes like just one winter, he just like went and was a ski bum in Jackson Hole and bust tables in the evening. Right. Like, you know, he doesn't have to hold down a job or anything. Yeah, 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 exactly. And that's, I mean, that's also the, like the, I think that's why the mental breakdown basically that Dennis goes through at the end of the play is so big is because this, there's finally a consequence for their lifestyle, um, it's not it's not directly to them, but it's to uh, at least someone who they hung out with the night before. At least someone and it who they're almost with. was to Dennis too, right? I mean, that's yeah. part of what freaks him out is like the drugs that that uh, Stewie overdosed on or whatever happened with him sort of must have happened immediately in the aftermath of 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 Dennis being there and yeah. also participating in this drug use. And so there's like this adjacent death that almost touched them. Reached out and just sort of tapped him on the shoulder. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 that sort of fear or or yeah, um a mentality of or of realization of the stakes <laughs> that they're in and that 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 you know to have to have a story of someone so close to them end so quickly really puts things into perspective because the rest of the play they're kind of just scrapping around for a good time especially Dennis um like like he there's the one one of the one of the best sort of uh, back and forths that Dennis goes on is is uh do I take some of this money and go to like France and just like live it up for a while. And then he'll like two lines later be like, no, 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 I can't do that. He's going to kill me if I do that. Take the money away. Get out of my apartment. Um, so, so there's this, this vacillating between going to a high and living out of fear that, that they, they kind of weave back and forth through centered on the money and, and how the money can either bring them that high, um, either through experience or through substances, um, or bring them that, that fear and that, 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 uh, sense of getting caught for something. Yeah. It's almost as if this is like a, a feigned or a mock, uh, personhood, or, or that's not quite what I mean. In individualness, adultness, where it's like the play is them exercising their right to make decisions for themselves as adults. But at the end of the day, Jessica goes back to her mom after having this wild night. She didn't check in with her mom, and now she's in trouble. So she goes home. And yep. the play ends with, after all this, after being like worried that his life was over, that he was going to move to Seattle, that he stole $15,000 <laughs> and lived it up on drugs for the night, that he finally yep. was with the girl of his... After all this, the play ends with Warren like, I think I'll probably just go home. Like, you know, I just, you know, it, this was sort of like a mock... Uh, experiment in going out and making my own decisions. Yeah. 
<laughs> it's true. Yeah, the the sort of way that that it ends, is, even the phone call with his dad, is this sort of like weird conversation that that ends like ends. It's clear that he's gotten caught. He's, he calls on the phone, and uh, it's clear that he's gotten got caught. That he has to come back and take the money back. But it ends with like I hate you too. Um, is the is the like the 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 side of the conversation we hear. Well, so and I don't. The the ending isn't even to me as as important as the middle, which is about the sister who died. I mean, all all play long, right? They're expecting the dad to find out who's the most dangerous man, lingerie manufacturer in the world. He's got like <laughs> henchmen and bodyguards and he's in league with criminals, right? He's this dangerous, terrible person, apparently. Uh, and, and so he's uh, Warren has stolen this money from him and they're expecting bodyguards to break in and break their legs and, and sell them off to, to pay back the debt. And he's this dangerous, terrible figure who's going to be so mad when he learns about the money. And then when dad finally calls near the end of the play, the conversation, they talk a little bit about the money at the beginning, but the conversation is at least the side that we get. It seems to be, at least I reading between the lines, that the dad is saying, I'm worried about you. Like, what? Yeah. Where, where are you? Are you in danger? You know, remember your, do- your sister was this age, and she left, and she was murdered. So where are you right now? Are you safe? That seems to be the kind of line of inquiry that, that the dad is on. Now, I th- I'm giving the dad probably a hair too much credit for his kindness, because even the other side of the conversation that we don't hear, you can feel the kind of person that he is. But I do think that is like generally the shape of the conversation as opposed to reaming out and threatening over the money for 10 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. That sort of center of the conversation is what stirs up Warren to be able to make that admission later on that he tries to kind of confide in Dennis, who who he's been trying to kind of be friends with for the whole play and, and for longer time before uh, this this part of his story about his sister um, that 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 conversation with his dad and the probability of having to go back to his dad probably like shakes that all up for him and and kind of stirs up the the water enough for him to be able to try to reach out and, and trust trust his friend with the information and a significant part of his story that he ha- he wasn't even willing to share with Jessica and 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 as you think about all of this like. This this conflict is we returning to what you mentioned earlier about this difference between being kids and adults, right? That these are three people who it's not like they're that they're the kind of persons that you would expect to be their own people you know, fully independent from their parents. Although I recognize that our society is changing all of that right now because of everything that's going on. But what I mean is like the age that these three characters are, even Dennis, who's like quote unquote older is within this cusp, this sort of being on the brink. Warren and Jessica are 19. They've just graduated high school. They could be in college. In fact, Warren was in college for a while and it somehow didn't work out for whatever reason. Uh, Dennis is 21. I mean, this is very much a play about the time in your life where there's a shift from being a kid to being an adult. Yeah, which which comes out in lots of interesting ways, certainly the ways we've already been describing, but also in the ways that like you see these characters trying to use their adulthood. <laughs> um so so you have you have Warren who's trying to use his adulthood by like getting out there on his own. He makes his big move, steals a bunch of money and tries to like, you know, move towards things that he's always wanted to do and whether that's uh kind of 
getting a closer relationship with Dennis or having a relationship with Jessica or, or, you know, dreaming towards going back out to Colorado, whatever it is, he's trying to negotiate it and figure it out. We kind of see uh, Dennis a stage later in life <laughs> where he's sort of done that a little bit already. He has something running, um, but, but kind of wondering at the efficacy of what he's got running <laughs> um, because, because it's this, this, uh, this sort of he he comes up. I don't I don't know. I'm watching Better Call Saul right now, and he's a very similar character to Better Call to, to, to Saul Goodman in that series. Of like he's he's this person who just like calls people up, talks his way into things, talks things out of people, and expects it to work out for the better. And eventually, like if you, he just keeps like uh, kind of one upping that that trait through the whole thing to the point that when he returns with nine hundred dollars, I don't know about you and your reading of a Jacob, but I wonder if he got a better deal and just kept the chunk of it off the top for himself because he's got this sort of pattern of selling things or trying to talk Warren into schemes that make him money on the side all at the risk of what Warren has to offer yeah and and we truly we don't know what we know is that Warren told him what he thinks they're worth and of the two characters I think the audience is led to trust Warren not only on that but on a lot of things right Uh, and 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 Dennis comes back with substantially less money than that now I also think that a possible story is that Dennis is not quite the salesman that he purports himself to be and we sort of see that play out in the drugs too but I'm glad that you brought up the toys because I think this is a fascinating part of this play and as you think about really good writers and what they're able to do and we've brought this up before when we talk about the best of the best here um the the way that you can invest objects with significance far beyond what they are i mean for in a play about uh uh three people on this cusp this ledge this this teeter totter between being uh kids protected and and financed by their parents and 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 being adults independent and not financed by their parents and this sort of wavering back and forth that they do for Warren to be toting around a bag of toys yeah i mean is amazing writing and and, and yeah. the some of the most touching moments of the play are these intense physical high stakes arguments and battles that Warren and Dennis will get into and then later that Warren and Jessica gets into that in both cases are almost interrupted by the discovery that he's got little toys with him action figures and Martian men and all of these little things and just like a different kind of person comes out you can sort of imagine the childhood people that exist inside these young people just peeking their heads out for just a second as the toys are discovered yeah especially especially with Warren who like like the whole time is trying to operate at the same level as Dennis projects at <laughs> um, for him to kind of have this kind of cue back into his, into his sort of inner child <laughs> that he's brought along with him um, is, is a really interesting. Yeah. It's a, it's an interesting negotiation. Each time it comes out, we talk about prop negotiation and all that business. And each time that like he reveals something more about the toys or his, like there's a great scene with a toaster that is like this this one of a hundred toasters that got canceled eventually because it was blowing up people's houses and starting fires. Um, he has this toaster and he has this this kind of extensive monologue where he says, like, I don't I don't even really know if this is super worth it, but it's just or, or worth a lot of money in resell. 
but I just like the fact that I know that I have one of under a hundred of these left in the world. I'm just holding on to this for, for, for some sort of sentimental reason because it like places me somewhere in the world. Um, and that's, that's just a, like all of those like little revelations, the negotiation of the hat too. He almost allows Dennis to sell his grandfather's hat and it's the one thing he holds on to. And that's the one thing that Jessica asks for. <laughs> so it's, it's just brilliant the way that it, it sort of weaves its way in and out the, the sort of adulthood negotiation of all of these characters as they try to play off of each other and negotiate each other's standing with each other. And I, I sort of wonder, I don't actually know that this is what Kenneth Lonergan imagined. Uh, I may be thinking from my director's brain more than anything right now, but I, I, I like the idea, let me say it like this, that the all of the business surrounding the usage of drugs is so intricate in this play. This is not like you whip a blunt out from your pocket and you're going to go, they they have to roll marijuana into the stuff that they're going to use. There's scenes where they have to sort of measure. They've got this laboratory equipment to cut the cocaine that they bought, et cetera, et cetera, right? And I sort of wonder about all of that as a kind of intentional juxtaposition with the toys, as a sort yeah. of uh, 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 touchstones on either side of this teeter-totter. I mean, Act 2 opens, and one of the first descriptions we get is that Dennis is supposed to have brought back and laid out in a place the audience can see all of the little sort of mini-laboratory drug paraphernalia that he needs to be able to measure and cut and resell the drugs. And I just think about the fact that what happens in that act, which is the shorter of the two acts, almost right away, is that Dennis has got to take off, and he takes all of... Warren's toys with him and what Warren is left to do is to try to take care of the drugs by himself which is yeah. sort of I I mean I I don't know exactly what the implications of saying this I guess but it's sort of toy like like you can sort of yeah. imagine like a kid with an easy bake oven doing a similar like measuring and mixing <laughs> and he ends up spilling the drugs like a kid might end up spilling the brownie batter for their easy bake oven or whatever yeah, well, yeah, that, I, I, that, that's a great insight that when the toys leave, he's left with what to play with. He's left with drugs to play with um, and, and, and drug paraphernalia to play with. And he's not great at it. Like uh, Dennis is so vitriolic and mad at him uh, when he comes back because I've been he, he like yells that he's been doing this for years and he's never spilled drugs all over the floor before. Um, so, so there is this it, it becomes this extended metaphor of the things that these young adults play with. Um, are extensions of what they played with before and the various degrees to which um, they're capable of of sustaining sustaining that sort of play um, uh, uh, with 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 these substances certainly but uh, more generally than with each other and whether they can continue to interact with each other with these newfound you can, yeah, again, this is this is a weird, weird. But these newfound toys are my air quotes. Well, and um, I, for just them. just so that we're all clear, I mean, I think it is supposed to be uncomfortable. Absolutely, like, I, I don't. I don't actually think Kenneth Lonergan's like just advocating for massive drug use yeah. among American youth. I think it's deliberately supposed to make you uh, sort of uncomfortable with the things that are being juxtaposed and layered together. Because it's juxtaposed with like like space space commanders um it's it's yeah it's deliberately supposed to be this this draw 
a par- parallelism between like this is like this is what a significant chunk of our youth the play is called this is our youth transition to playing with after they're done with with these other toys so so yeah it's it's like I, I agree it's definitely feels like a commentary on that and as we started talking about this you mentioned that it was especially Warren who you can see the childhood sort of peeking out of with the toys and I actually think I disagree with that. Uh, because I, I think of the three characters, Warren is the more childlike. That, and that's not even quite right because I think the mask of, of professionalism and individualism held by Jessica and Dennis is mostly a mask. So maybe what I mean is that um, Warren is the, is the, uh, obfuscates his childlikeness the the least among the three. Yeah. So actually it's when Dennis and Jessica interact with the toys that you really see something peek out. And for Dennis actually it's a real uncomfortability. Like when Warren has the toys out, I mean it's a it's a fascinating difference between the two characters. Really it's just such great writing. When Warren has the toys out and he's describing them to Dennis, Dennis is really uncomfortable. Put them away. I don't like seeing that stuff in my house. It's like I have this cave of adulthood that I've built around with no <laughs> but it's like a sheltered adulthood. No consequences. Yeah. I can live in New York City and smoke as much drugs as I want on a bike messenger's, you know, salary or whatever. I don't want these toys here. It interferes with like my sense of myself. Yeah. But when Jessica does it, it's like they've been arguing about these these adult issues, right? Politics and personhood and, and, and how people change as they grow older. And then the toys come out and it's like something bursts out from inside her. Oh my gosh, I can't. What? These are so cool. How awesome. Uh, and, and so I think it's with those other two that it really peeks out more clearly from it, may, it changes them somehow. The introduction of the toys does. Yeah, I agree. That that scene with Jessica where she like kind of kneels down and plays with the toys. She's one of the lines she says is like, "My cousins always had these toys, but they never let me play with them." So you you get this kind of window into her childhood. She kind of reverts back to childhood for a second, and yeah, it does kind of move the conversation away out of like you know reflecting on how all the 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 '60s movement folks turned into lawyers and left their their kind of. Uh, big political uh, hopes behind and just like <laughs> tried to tried to figure out something new and the sort of fear that she holds around like what happens if in 10 years I believe something completely different or what happens if in 10 years you Warren would you know become a some sort of surgeon or something like that and you just reflect on this wild time of your life so you, you kind of have the sort of safety of the toys that brings her back in that moment and and this is a great example of a play where it's like I don't think that Kenneth Lonergan purports to offer any answers to the questions of how we change what this movement from sheltered life as a child. Well, I, I, let me say right off the bat here, I, not everybody has a childhood like this, right? I mean, I, yeah. this, is a, this is a play very much in part about the privilege of these three. We've said that. And so I, I don't think that Kenneth Lonergan purports to offer any answers about this changing time of life, this, this growing personhood, this growing individualism. He purports to ask the question, though. And as uh, Warren and Jessica discuss that issue, right, this group of 60s parents who grew up with these protests and then all got wealthy and, and voted for Reagan and all of this stuff, right, uh, and they sort of debate this issue, I don't think you see inside of it Lonergan sort of speaking his view of it. You get this question, and the question comes in as sort of a small debate. Warren says, you know, I kind of think people's personalities are basically uh, set in stone inside of them, and they just 
grow further into themselves as they grow older. And you get Jessica who says, you can be an entirely different person within 20 years and you'll look back and it's like the life you lived when you were the other person is so pointless that it's like you were dead. It's like you're you're not even the same human being that that human being was. And so he just he asks this question into the air on the stage. How do we change? How do we grapple with owning new responsibilities and new consequences for ourselves, especially for this kind of person who has a huge safety net underneath them to do all this within. Yeah, I, I agree. I don't think that he like that, that sort of question is posed and it's held without r- resolving it. It's kind of left to sort of hang and wonder about. We do, I think, get like a poss- like a catalyst moment that that possibly shows when when that sort of change can occur in the mental breakdown of Dennis and Warren realizing that Dennis is perhaps not on his side. We don't get the closure of knowing whether that actually changes anything for them. Um, we, you know, they leave sort of as tenuous friends. Warren returns home, but there's there there is this kind of wondering of like, if if you know if the wondering is what causes us to change. A moment like the moment that they go through at the end of the play, especially that Dennis goes through at the end with 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 their friend dying and him wondering about how near he was to death that night before is is possibly one of those moments is is sort of one of those kind of terrifying hard moments that 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 causes that sort of change to occur. Well, I I think that uh, Kenneth Lonergan says one of the things that pushes you that that changes you as you grow up is someone your age, someone you know, dying. And, yeah. and and that's true. I mean, it, it happened to me. I think I've talked about it on the podcast before. I was a teenager when another teenager that I knew, uh, even somewhat well, that was sort of in my age in socioeconomic class that, uh, you know, was around me, died. And that, like, that is still a moment of impact in my life. As it, And, and I, think, I think almost everybody, can mention, and this happens even inside the sort of sheltered, affluent world that these characters live in. And it almost asks broader questions about the the trauma of change that must be experienced by folks who don't have that safety net. Yeah, yeah, and and even the ones cer- certainly yes, the the trauma that can occur, but then it also even sort of uh, adds a critique or an evaluation of the safety net that these kids have, <laughs> um, like that they're they're just kind of on their own <laughs> in this world outside of uh, sufficient systems to support them, trying to find it in each other, but eventually missing it. This play is full of connections missed. Um, where where these characters tried to reach out to each other and just like missed each other, or tried to stand up for themselves and wound up hurting the other more than they meant to. Um, so so it's it's yeah, it's just full of all these these sort of moments where you you try to evaluate even 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 the sort of uh, security that these characters think they have. And and that like missed connections idea, I think for me is one of the more fascinating parts of Warren's character. And I think it's why he's the protagonist of the play because he drives the action so much, but here's how I think he does it, which I just think is fascinating. And it's part of why I think Michael Sarah was such a great cast. I would have loved to have seen his performance. Warren has this innate, um, he says things that, the other characters don't want said 
or or try to cover up in more complex conversations. Here's just a short list. This is by no means all of them. This is just the most obvious couple of them. Uh, Dennis is waxing poetic about how they're going to use this money to get to France and enjoy their time. And Warren says, okay, let's do it. I've got the money. Let's go. And you can see Dennis immediately goes, I, I, I was sort of, I don't, I don't actually want to do that, man. Yeah. Dennis, <laughs> Warren sort of calls Dennis's bluff. Later, uh, Dennis can't figure out, you know, uh, doesn't want to let Warren stay. And Warren, instead of living in this game, this battle that they have all the time, just outright says this, the thing that is underneath the conversation that they're having. Dennis, I'm a good friend to you. You know, you're, you're kind of a dick and I hang out with you yeah. and I do the things you want to do. I don't understand why you're treating me this badly. I would do this for you. In fact, I did do this for you when you needed a place to stay. He says the thing underneath it and cuts through the BS and in doing so drives the action forward, right? Just like the money for France, instead of waxing poetic about all the amazing things they could do with the money, Warren, by cutting through that and saying, okay, fine, let's do it, drives the action into the practical application. He drives Dennis to allow him to stay. Later, Jessica comes over, this is after they've had their night together, uh, to what? To, to tell him that she doesn't want to see him anymore, but she came over to see him and do it? So instead of playing that battle and that dance of, well, you don't want to see me, but you're here to see me, so what's going on? He asks the question outright, why did you come over here? What, what, he was on the phone for like two minutes. If you did just call back, you would have gotten us. Did you come 10 blocks out of your way to tell me that you aren't going to come out of your way to see me anymore? I don't. What is the point of that? I don't understand. So he drives the action of their relationship forward by cutting through all the BS there. The same thing happens with Stewie's death. Dennis is so freaked out about it. And Warren basically says, you know, nobody even liked Stewie. Why, why does this impact you so much? And he forces Dennis to articulate why the death impacts him in a much more specific and concrete way. And then, uh, you know, D Dennis is like, I would be a great movie director. And Warren says, no, you wouldn't. <laughs> no, you would. wouldn't it's be a great movie yeah. director. He takes it out of this sort of general, all the things I could have done with my life and forces Dennis to confront the actuality of what he is doing with his life. Warren, as the protagonist, has this gift of like saying the thing that that needs to be said for anything to move ahead in their lives. And it doesn't ever seem like Jessica or Dennis really do have that gift. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. His sort of like clarity, clarity of purpose or clarity of 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 perception of 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 what's going on in the other character like cuts through the noise and there's a lot of noise from Dennis especially um uh, to to cut through and 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 his, and his think, perception and his willingness to say it too yeah mhm mm he also seems to be the one that goes on the most significant journey though it's Dennis who has the sort of breakdown at the end uh Warren goes from like I'm leaving home with $15,000 to <laughs> I'm going back home to a, a somewhat, uh, at least a non-ideal home life um, to to kind of figure out what's what's going on there rather than trying to join up with Dennis and, and Dennis's shenanigans. Yeah, well, I, I do think that all three of the characters have have a really significant arc in the play and that, 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 you know, the, the kind of question of why today uh, really is answered very clearly for all three characters in this play. What I, what I think maybe it is about Warren is, is like, it's that childlikeness coming through, like in a way that young kids will just say things 
things that they observe and that they think are the most obvious, like we should be talking about this right now kind of yeah. things. Like, why is that there or whatever, right? Well, how does this happen? Why is this <laughs> that way? And adults are like, wait, we don't talk about that. But that's not a topic of it. We, we have to obfuscate and confuse and dance around those kinds of topics. We have to play these games and these battles and young kids will just sort of cut through all that crap and say the thing that they are really feeling. I think that in the way that this play is about being on the cusp of adulthood and childhood, that Warren is like the balancing factor. There are games, different kinds of games that are played by both Jessica and Dennis that are the games we play as humans with each other. (laughs) And Warren still has that little sort of something in him where he just sort of is not interested. Just so it doesn't even occur to him to play the game really. Yeah. There's, there's just so many parts like, like we could, we could get like down into both, all, or not both, all three of these characters' stories, and I agree that each of them has their like own arc that they go on and and sort of betrayals. It's interesting the previous title of the play. There's a lot of betrayal <laughs> in this in this script too. And we, we alas we are out of time, but we don't have to stop talking about it. We would love to keep talking about this is our youth with all of you out there in podcast land. If there's something you'd like to add to the conversation or just something you want to kind of continue talking about with people who have read the play, this is a great spot to do it, either with us or with all the other listeners out there in no script land. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter at the username at NoScriptPodcast. We also have a Gmail, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. Find us on any of those sites. We'd love to keep talking about this play with you. Absolutely. If you've liked this conversation or any of our other conversations about some of the fabulous scripts out there, please share the podcast with your family and friends. You can send them to Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and we, uh, we're hosted on Podbean, so that's where the different links that we post out there will send you, including the link on Facebook, which you can get if you like our Facebook page. Every Monday as the episodes are released, there'll be a link right there for you to click and access the new episode. We got a special guest coming up in just a couple of weeks. Keep your eyes peeled for that. You'll hear that awesome conversation that Jeffrey Sweet and I got to have. I'm excited for that to come out. And next week, we'll be back with another great script. So until then, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us for No Script, the podcast.